With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Scuderia F1, the podcast that's always up to speed with the latest Formula One news. Follow us on Twitter at Scuderia F1 Pod and subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Daly and Kevin Laramay. Hey everybody, what is up? Welcome to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Podcast Network. Mark Daly here welcoming you guys into a big, lonely and empty studio tonight. Kevin is off this week as he prepares for his wedding in just over a month's time and... As anyone who's been through a wedding or helped plan one knows that there's a million things to take care of. And I'm sure whenever Kevin gets a spare moment or two, and honestly, that might be all that he gets over the next couple of weeks or months, whatever it is, leading up to and after the big day as he adjusts to life as a married man, he'll jump back into the show whenever possible. And of course, we will welcome him back with open arms and... As always, there are so many things to talk about with news in Formula One, and we're going to do just that tonight and next week and beyond. And once again, we have to start off the show with more bad news, and I'm sure that uh, by by this time, everyone that's uh, following Formula One knows of the untimely and early passing of uh, Nikki Lauda, the three-time world uh, champion who passed away Monday at the age of 70. And uh, Nikki was in uh, poor health over the last year or so after undergoing a lung transplant uh, last summer. And of course, on uh, behalf of myself and Kevin and the show here, that we extend our deepest consultation condolences to Nikki's family and his friends and uh, he'll be truly missed I mean he was one of the true greats I mean obviously a three-time world champion and I'm far too young to remember Nikki as uh, in his prime although my earliest conscious Formula One uh, memories uh, do involve Nicky Lauda. I, I kind of remember him racing for McLaren way back in in 1984, but I was too young at that point to really uh, appreciate it. But uh, certainly one of the great characters in the sport. And I think his uh, openness, his candor, and uh, his bluntness and his straightforwardness, I think is one of the things I really truly appreciated uh, about the man. And uh, I always found his takes uh, refreshing and to the point, and uh, sometimes just the way that he, he was really blunt I think uh, really, uh, at least in my mind, really uh, made him a, a guy to admire. I mean, not just uh, that, but also the fact, uh, the, the courage that he had and the, the the physical fortitude that he had after that horrible uh, crash that he suffered at the German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring in 1976, which uh, nearly claimed his life, uh, is uh, really quite remarkable. I mean, he was uh, literally on death's door for uh, several days, and only six weeks after the big accident. Uh, he was back uh, racing, and even though his wounds on his head were not um, uh, fully healed, he was back in the car, and uh, at the end of the 1976 season, he ended up missing out on the World Championship by a single point, and there was a, a really <laughs> quite a funny quote uh, that I saw, and he was just uh, talking about the uh, the season finale at uh, uh, Fuji in Japan in 1976, and uh, th- this is, uh, I think, a uh, classic Nicky Lauda and he said quote quote to me it was clear it was simple the circuit was flooded flooded the rain did not stop for two hours and this idiot Japanese race director came and said this race is on now this for me was the most stupid decision ever I did one lap so Ferrari gets the money and off I went and uh, I think that that entire 1976 season was uh, brilliantly portrayed in the 2013 uh, uh, film by Ron Howard Rush. I've watched it a couple of times and uh, I really enjoyed it. Of course, I think there were some aspects of it that were played up a little bit uh, for Hollywood and for the big screen, but uh, a lot of people that I've talked to that uh, that remember that season and followed it closely said it was a fairly accurate uh, portrayal, although maybe the rivalry between Lauda and Hunt was maybe uh, a little bit more 
sensationalized and maybe uh, appeared to be a little bit more bitter than it was. But overall, it was a, a good, good uh, story. Anyways, uh, like I said, Nicky was a three-time world champion. He won his first uh, world championship in 1975 and again in 1977 with Ferrari and won his third world championship with 1980, in 1984 with McLaren. And uh, he was really involved with the Formula One circuit after he retired with the driver in 1985. And uh, he was one of the big, I think, um, most noticeable and public figures for Mercedes in in recent years. And uh, there was really quite a a touching tweet that came out on the official Formula One uh, Twitter account earlier this week that said, Rest in peace, Nicky Lauda, forever carried in our hearts, forever immortalized in our history. The motorsport community today mourns the devastating loss of a true legend. The thoughts of everyone at F1 are with his friends and family. And the the tributes that have been coming out over the past uh, couple of years, a couple of days, pardon me, have uh, been really quite uh, touching. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator himself, said, uh, Nicky was a champion. He was an icon. He was an Austrian treasure. He was one of my dear friends. I will miss this generous trailblazing hero with my whole heart. And there are are plenty of uh, similar uh, tributes uh, all over the place and we'll talk a little bit about those uh, more in the uh, as we move on here but uh, Nikki was born into a fairly wealthy Vienna family on the 22nd of February in 1949 and was expected to follow his father into the paper manufacturing industry, but he uh, really wanted to concentrate his uh, his focus on his uh, business talents and focused on his dreams of becoming a racing driver. So he was able to finance his early career with a, a string of loans and uh, worked his way up through Formula 3 and Formula 2, and he made his Formula 1 debut for the March team at the 1971 Austrian Grand Prix and picked up his first points in F1 in 1973 after he got a fifth fifth place finish for BRM in Belgium. Uh, He joined Ferrari in 1974, winning a Grand Prix for the first time that year in Spain. And of course, uh, he won his first uh, driver's title in 1975 for Ferrari with five victories uh, that year. And it, it really is uh, quite uh, extraordinary when uh, you read through some of the quotes and some of the things that uh, that he had to say about uh, his accident at the Nürburgring in, in 1976. And uh, it really was uh, truly horrific. And I mean, this day and age, I mean, Formula One undoubtedly is so much uh, safer. I mean, uh, the, the one uh, black mark on that, of course, is the the untimely and unfortunate uh, tragic accident of uh, Jules Bianchi in, uh, in Japan at Suzuka a couple of years ago. But I mean, in in those days uh, when when Nikki was racing in the seventies, was still very very dangerous, and it, it was not uncommon for for drivers to to be very badly injured or killed. And uh, he was very lucky that uh, that he was able to recover from that that accident. And uh, recounting that uh, that accident, he did say, and I quote: "The main damage I think to myself was the lung damage from inhaling all the flames and fumes while I was sitting in the car for about fifty seconds. It was something like eight hundred degrees." He also went on to say for three or four days it was touch and go. Then my lungs recovered and I got my skin grafts done. And then basically there was nothing left. I was really lucky in a way that I didn't do any other damage to myself. So the real question was then, will I be able to drive again? Because it certainly was not easy to come back after a race like that. And then he miraculously or stubbornly, I mean, those who know Nicky Lauda would know best uh, for for those that were with him during that uh, uh, period where he recovered from those horrible injuries. But just six weeks after that horrible accident at the Nürburgring, he was back in the car at Monza and uh, he was um, obviously uh, quite... uh, quite scared and he uh, he said and I quote shaking with fear as he uh, got into the car and changed uh, from first to second gear and the, the, the first day of practice and he thought he couldn't drive uh, and he just uh, pushed through and he said that the, the following day he started very slowly trying to get all the feelings back especially the confidence that, that he needed to be able to drive a Formula 1 car again and then he said uh, as a result of that from the from the practice the, the his confidence was uh, boosted after a couple of races and then he he said by that point, he had really overcome all the fears and the problems of having such a horrible accident and uh, everything uh, went back uh, to, to, to normal. And I really do recommend uh, for those uh, people that uh, haven't seen it yet to go and see Rush if you really want a condensed uh, version of that 1976 season. It uh, really does uh, tell the story uh, very, very well. 
Anyways, uh, just uh, talking about some of the uh, the, the uh, tributes, uh, Mercedes Formula One boss uh, Total Wolf uh, also paid uh, tribute to, to Nicky Lauda, saying that uh, his fellow Austrian was uh, irreplaceable and uh, and a hero. And uh, uh, Wolf went on to say, and I quote: First of all, on behalf of the team and all of Mercedes, I wish to send our deepest condolences to Birgit, Nicky's children, his family, and close friends. Nicky will always remain one of the greatest legends of our sport. He combined heroism, humanity, and honesty inside and outside of the cockpit. His passing leaves a void in Formula One. We haven't just lost a hero who staged the most remarkable comeback ever seen, but also a man who brought precious clarity and candor to modern Formula One. He will be greatly missed as as our voice of common sense. Our Mercedes team has also lost a guiding light. As a teammate over the past six and a half years, Nicky, Nicky was always brutally honest and utterly loyal. It was a privilege to count him among our team and moving to witness just how much it meant to him to be a part of the team's success. Whenever he walked the floor in Brackley and Bricksworth, he discovered one of his most famous motivational speeches. He brought an energy that nobody else could replicate. Nikki, you are quite simply irreplaceable. There will never be another like you. It was our honor to call you our chairman and my privilege to call you my friend. So very touching words from uh, from Total Wolf. And then, of course, uh, just in a couple of days, we have the, the, the Monaco Grand Prix and uh, Lewis Hamilton uh, was excused from the media duties uh, on Wednesday uh, following the, the the passing of Lauda, who was a, a friend of his. And um, Hamilton uh, made a, a very touching uh, post on Twitter. And he said, quote, I'm struggling to believe that you are gone. I will miss our conversations, our laughs, the big hugs after winning races together. God rest your soul. Thank you for being a bright light in my life. I'll always be there for your family should they ever need me. Love you, man. So very, very touching words uh, from from Lewis Hamilton. And of course, we could go on for a, a long, long time, but a, a couple other uh, ones I wanted to, to mention was that um, Sebastian Vettel said that he sent a, a handwritten letter to, to Nicky Lauda last year, and uh, he said that it was a, a no-brainer because, um, <laughs> well, obviously it's a no-brainer, but he said that uh, respect uh, says it all was his reasoning uh, for, for sending him a handwritten letter, and he went on to uh, elaborate on that saying, quote, I heard he was not doing well and not doing well for a while, and he wasn't in the mood to pick up a phone or the state to talk over the phone. You think what would you appreciate if you were in that situation? Just reading a a little note is a nice thing. Uh, For me, it was a no-brainer and a sign of respect. So Vettel went on to say that it was a privilege to have spent time uh, with uh, with Lauda, and uh, of course uh, they're they're both uh, Ferrari drivers of uh, different uh, generations. And and Vettel's um, a very keen enthusiast of Formula One history, and said that uh, that when he had the opportunity, he asked him about all sorts of things, how the cars were back in the day when he was uh, in Formula One, what his time like was with Ferrari, and of course the the, the big question, uh, <laughs> how was Enzo Ferrari? And then uh, Vettel went on also to add that his respect was based on what allowed it to achieve the person he is and what he's done uh, for for the sport. So very much uh, echoed, I think, uh, by many people who knew him or not. So I just want to go on and uh, just... uh close out this uh, sad part of the show this uh, week and uh, with uh, one final tribute uh, from uh, Helmut Marko and uh, from Red Bull and uh, he said that the death of his constant companion uh, Nicky Lauda was made all the more painful by their very close uh, uh, friendship. So um, uh, Marko said that he first met his fellow Austrian around 1968 and the two followed each other closely throughout their racing careers and also when they moved out into non-driving roles and uh, Marko uh, said quote, I knew he was not in good condition, but still when the news comes, it's a blow. So yeah, of course. And then Marco goes on to add that, uh, and I say quotes, throughout my racing career, Nikki was my constant companion, both on the driving side and in management. There have been so many experiences, so many shared actions and shared funny events. And then this, that's just hard when there's no one in whole Formula One scene who can get even close to him in terms of personality, humor, and straightforwardness. 
And then uh, Marco also um, uh, added that uh, he went to go and visit uh, Lauda in hospital last year in Vienna and said that uh, he was horrified uh, when he, he saw the condition that Nikki was in, but uh, he said that he, he instantly recognized him uh, because he was still full of optimism and there was still what he said, a lot of, uh, quote, power in his uh, voice. So uh, very, very <laughs> sad, of course, to, to hear, uh, you know, all these tributes uh, from uh, people that have been close to Nikki Lauda. And uh, again, we, we uh, extend our condolences here. And I think uh, what we'll do now is before we uh, go into the, the, the rest of the show topic, we'll take uh, an early break uh, th- this week and uh, come back on the other side here on the Overtime Media Network. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, welcome back. And like I say, there is plenty of news going on in Formula One this week. We have Monaco uh, coming up in just a couple of days. And uh, by the time this show comes out, uh, it will be Thursday. So I'm practicing qualifying and the race itself literally right around the corner. So uh, first in the news is that uh, Monaco has added a high grip surface to the chicane escape road. And of course, that is the chicane at the end of the very famous tunnel at Monaco. Uh, that has seen a number of accidents uh, over the year, including over the years, including Carl Wendlinger back in the '90s, Jensen Button, and Sergio Perez, and they all suffered uh, injuries that kept them out of uh, races. So the idea is that uh, that uh, rougher surface is intended to help drivers out of control, slow down, damage uh, to the tires could also be uh, <laughs> a uh, unpleasant, and unwelcome um, side effect for, for for those drivers that uh, lock up or are unable to make that corner rounds uh, through the chicane there, but. Uh, definitely any safety measures that they can add to, to, to Monaco. Obviously, a very tight and very compact uh, circuit with uh, very little room for, for any error. And of course, uh, we, we have seen accidents over the years. I mean, two years ago, we saw that uh, rather bizarre incident Pascal Verlein and Jensen Button, who was filling in for Fernando Alonso when he was off at the Indy, and that was just uh, before the very sharp right-hander that leads into the tunnel, and uh, Jensen poked his nose into a place that uh, it really shouldn't have been, and sent uh, Verlein up onto two wheels, and uh, he came up to rest uh, against the Armco barrier, and uh, that was a bit of a bizarre accident, but certainly... Uh, as I say, any safety measures that they can uh, that they can introduce at that track are certainly uh, very very welcome. And of course, I think like the rest of you, and I think uh, also it, like many of the drivers, I'm hoping, crossing my fingers for an exciting race this weekend. I don't know if we can uh, necessarily expect one. Last year's was it was it was pretty boring. I mean, as exciting as it was to watch uh, Danny Ricardo hang on to the lead at the front there with that um, engine problem that he had. Uh, he really was just able to stay out in front and the power deficit that he had uh, really, well, I mean, it was obviously a deficit and a problem that uh, that he had, but the cars that were trailing behind him, the Ferraris, the Mercedes, uh, his own teammate and, uh, and Max Verstappen, who was fighting his way through the race order really wasn't uh, as, as detrimental as it would be on the other 20 circuits uh, throughout the rest of the entire year. But it did not really make for an exciting race uh, other than that. Uh, I mean, the, the big storyline that day was Ricardo and whether or not he'd be able to hold on to the lead because uh, there, there really weren't too many other exciting moments. And it really is difficult. I mean, the, the track does not have very many uh, opportunities and uh, and 
places on the circuit where drivers can pass, although uh, Max Verstappen did a very good uh, job last year to fight up uh, as high as he could in the race order. And that was the real turning point for Max Verstappen in, in, in 2018. Those first five, six, half dozen races of the year were fairly troubling uh, and problematic for Max. He, he wasn't uh, performing well. He was making some bad uh, decisions. He, uh, he spun the car out a couple of times. And it all really peaked in, in, in Monaco uh, when he put the car into the barrier at the end of FP3. And then uh, they, they were not able to repair the car in time for qualifying. And then he had to uh, start from the back of the, uh, the, the, the grid on Sunday. But he had a phenomenal race and he fought his way up and, and finished very, very well. And more than that, I mean, it, it was really that turning point because... He was getting a lot of criticism and a lot of comments uh, from within and uh, from without his team uh, throughout uh, Formula One in the media from the fans. And he really went away. And uh, for a young guy, I think he really collected himself well. He must have gotten some very good uh, advice from uh, his dad, Yoss, who, of course, is also a Formula, uh, former Formula One driver. Because when he came to uh, Montreal in Canada a couple of weeks later for the Canadian Grand Prix, he was uh, very much to focus. He came without his entourage and he just uh, fo- he just got down to uh, business and focused in uh, what he needed to do and uh, that was that, that that real milestone moment in his year and uh, it was really uh, night and day to the, the the way that he performed in races uh, after uh, Monaco and of course he managed to, uh, to win several races uh, in 2018 and uh, all credit to him and uh, I think it really showed that uh, despite being such a young fellow that uh, that he's mature nicely there's no doubt in my mind and obviously this can be proven (laughs) fairly easily that Max Verstappen is a very very good Formula One driver he's very very quick in the wet in the dry and uh, he certainly has all the attributes and uh, really I think that if he has a competitive car he has everything that he needs to be a Formula One world champion the question is when and if he'll be able to uh, to do that All right, moving along. So Valtteri Bottas and Mercedes say that they are, quote, taking measures to prevent uh, bad starts. And that comes in the aftermath of troubled starts that he's had in both the Chinese and Spanish Grand Prix, where he qualified on pole position. But the the poor starts that he had um, forced him to drop back, and the, both of those races were won by his teammate. So one of the things that they're doing is removing the clutch that he used in Barcelona a couple of weeks ago from his pool of parts uh, for the year. And Botas, I think, has done extremely well this year. Total Wolf said over the weekend that if he wants to stay with Mercedes after this year when his con- current contract uh, expires, that he has to perform on a level that is a good as or even better as a five-time world champion and teammate Lewis Hamilton, which, of course, is setting the bar very, very high. But after a disappointing 2018 season for, for Botas, He's gone away and he's come back this year, I think, in a a very, very good frame of mind. And I think that's a a very, very good, well, obviously a very good thing. And I I commend him for it because when you have a car such as Mercedes, you know that you have a very, very good chance to win a race every time you show up to the track. And it just didn't work out for him last year. A couple of key moments that stand out in 2018 for Valtteri Bottas was leading at Baku and then having some damage that caused a puncture late in the race and then having to forfeit that after looking like he was odds on to win that. And then of course, uh, later in the year at the Russian Grand Prix at Sochi when he was uh, leading the race and then was ordered to back off and let his uh, teammate uh, pass him uh, so Lewis could uh, get the extra points that he need and just sort of help consolidate and fortify his position at the top of the world championship. And that, I think, really kind of underlined the frustrating season that uh, that Bottas had in 2018. And I was really curious to see how he would respond because he's sort of, a, I, I guess, I don't want to stereotype uh, people here or di- different uh, cultures, but I mean, he is, I guess you could say, a typical Finn. Uh, I mean, he is not, not very forthcoming. I mean, I, I mean, he's not very animated by standards of uh, different people, but... Uh, 
that, of course, doesn't mean that that's necessarily a bad thing, but mentally, and of course, I do a lot of media work and I interview a lot of professional soccer players, a lot of coaches, and a lot of elite athletes at that level. And I'm always interested about like the mindset, the people that are the highest levels of their sports. So after that frustrating 2018, I was very fascinated to see how Bottas would come back uh, this year. And the the opening race of the year in uh, Australia really, I think, made a very, very good impression uh, for, for me. And I think everybody else that was watching that race, I mean, I, th- I think it really showed that uh, he was coming into 2019 focused and serious that he dealt with the disappointing season that he had last year and that he'd moved on. He drew that line in the sand or he underlined it and say, okay, well, that's last year. There's nothing more I can do. There's no point dwelling on it. We're coming into 2019. I'm still with Mercedes. I know I'm going to get a good car. So let's just concentrate on the the year ahead. <clears throat> Excuse me, the year ahead. And what he's done so far is, uh, uh, honestly, I think, extremely impressive. I mean, he's lived up to the expectation that that his team has uh, set for him. He's won a couple of races. He's currently second in the world championship. And by rights, he should probably be be first. I mean, these couple of poor starts that uh, that he's had is, uh, it's got to be disappointing and frustrating to him. But, you know, having said that, it still is early, early days in the 2019 world championship. We're only half a dozen races into this thing. And there's a very, very long time to go. He's only a couple of points uh, behind his uh, teammate in uh, in the world championship. So, I mean, there's a lot of time. There's a lot of races. There's a lot of miles left to run and anything can and possibly uh, will happen. But he certainly uh, must be uh, extra motivated to, to make up for the ground that uh, that he's lost point-wise in a couple of those weight races. I wouldn't say squandered. I, I would think that's probably a little bit too harsh. But knowing that you are racing against a, a teammate that is a five-time world champion and Lewis Hamilton is Lewis Hamilton. I mean, he is the best driver of this generation. He's one of the best drivers of all time. There's nobody quicker than him over the course of a single lap. And what Lewis continues to do and has done for a number of years honestly still blows me away. I mean, he's almost like a machine when it comes to, I would say, the predictiveness or the uh, regularity. But you just know that when Lewis needs to set a fast lap and and be faster than anyone else, that he can do it. And w- when you see the timing come up and you see those different sectors tick off and turn purple whenever Lewis needs to sec- set a fastest lap, and it doesn't matter if it's in qualifying, trying to get the pole position, or it's in a race when you know he's trying to um, trying to build up a, enough of a gap and, and just give himself a little bit more cushion from the guy that's uh, behind him when he comes out of the pits, it is impressive. You just kind of watch him. You just see the sectors and the fastest laps add up one after another. So you have to think that if you're Valtteri Bottas and you know that you have that advantage on a Sunday knowing that you're going to be in an equal car compared to uh, your your teammate Lewis Hamilton, and you also have the advantage of having out-qualified him, you're on pole position, he's in second, and you know that if you get a good start, you have a good chance of staying in front of him. And, well, we can get away from that whole discussion maybe for now about maybe how predictive or predictable that uh, Formula One has become. But having said that, uh, you know that uh, that if you can stay in front of your teammate, and I think Australia was a perfect example, Botas was impressive. He did a very, very good job to get on pole. He stayed out in front. He was at arm's length from Lewis Hamilton. He had like a comfortable enough lead the entire race. And there was no question when it was looking back to say, yeah, there wasn't really too many shaky moments in that race where it looked like uh, Bottas was going to to lose that one and uh, Hamilton was going to sneak in and, and take the, the 25 points that uh, maybe was more deserved for, for, for Bottas. But, you know, having said that, I mean, uh, Bottas, I think by rights, should be at the, the, the top of the world championship. But, you know, these couple of poor starts here and there have denied him for the, the, the full points, but he sure has a long way to, to go. And uh, certainly he has uh, many opportunities to, to make up for that. And I was also thinking, too, that 
a big difference uh, this year is that also I think that Lewis Hamilton realizes now that he's got a, a bit of a fight on his hand with his teammate, which maybe over the past year or two that he hasn't really necessarily had for, from Bottas. I mean, he, he's been able to win races here and there. Obviously, 2018, that uh, didn't happen. But I think after Baku a couple of weeks ago, when uh, Lewis Hamilton said after the race that uh, maybe he wouldn't give Bottas as much leeway or as much room at the start uh, in the future, I think that's maybe not so much uh, Lewis um, being selfish and looking out for himself. I mean, obviously he is to a certain extent, but I think it's also, um, I think it's an acknowledgement of respect, knowing that if push comes to shove, that he's really going to have to fight and work for it because he's got a teammate that's that's up for it, uh, a teammate that's also at the top of his game right now. And I don't think Lewis necessarily thinks that it's going to be easy for him anytime. I don't don't think that at all, but I think that uh, over the last year or so that Bottas just wasn't having the luck and just wasn't able to to challenge as much as uh, he wanted to or maybe as Lewis uh, expected. So this year, I think that uh, Lewis very much realizes that uh, that he's got a fight on his hand. It might not be as easy uh, that uh, that it was in the past. And I don't really expect to see these two drivers have comings together or incidents like we saw with Rosberg and Hamilton over the years. I think that both of them are level-headed enough. I think there's enough respect uh, between them. I don't think there's necessarily as much anim- animosity between uh, Hamilton Bottas. In fact, I don't think there's any at all that uh, that they will be cognizant and recognize the bigger picture on the track in the races, and that is that there is more just going on than their own personal quest for the the world championship. And certainly, previous history between Rosberg and Hamilton, you can pull out many incidents: uh, Spa twenty fourteen, uh, Spain twenty sixteen, uh, and also Austria. And a lot of those incidents, when they came together, and not only did they uh, cost themselves points and uh, they cost the team points, but it just uh, led to a really negative uh, atmosphere in, in the team. And I think that Bottas and Hamilton uh, realize that uh, there is more at play and they, they just can't necessarily be selfishly focused on their own goals. Because if you look at Mercedes as a team, when you look at the men and women that make up the, the, the team that is at the track on race weekends, in the factory and everywhere, this is a group of people that love to go racing and they have won dozens and dozens and dozens of races over the past uh, four or five, six years, starting in 2014. They've been so dominant in this era, and it seems that they are just as excited and and pleased to win each and every race and championship like it was their, their first one. And despite them dominating Formula One, I mean, you have to respect what these, uh, these, these people are able to do year in, year out, race in, race out. I mean, as as much as uh, some people might complain, it's boring and it's uh, it's a bit monotonous. I mean, it is impressive what they're able to do to stay at the top. And of course, they have a huge budget to do so, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to keep winning. So it is, uh, I think, a situation that uh, will continue. Uh, of course, I mean, uh, there there hasn't been a lot of evidence to the contrary this year. And uh, certainly, I think uh, that, that Bottas will really want to try and make up uh, some of these points uh, this weekend in Monaco. And we'll talk a little bit uh, more about that in a minute. We're going to take a, another quick break here on the Overtime Podcast Network. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, the Monaco Grand Prix this weekend and some other news in the Formula One world, and we'll do so in just a moment. So please don't go away. We'll be right back after the message from our sponsors. All right, welcome back to Scuderia F1, and let's talk a little bit now about uh, Ferrari. And of course, Ferrari is the big disappointment of uh, Formula One this year after doing so well in winter testing and winning what a lot of uh, hacks out there have been calling the winter championship. They really have underwhelmed in the first uh, half dozen racers or so of the, the season so far. And team principal Mattia Bonato has said that they have uh, begun evaluating new concepts for his Formula One car. 
and really trying to determine the extent of the different mechanical and aerodynamic settings that are required to work the Pirelli's 2019 tire specs better. And it's it's widely acknowledged in Formula 1 this year that Ferrari have the best and most powerful engine, but the, the, the chassis, the car itself, has really been disappointing, and it's really been... A real head scratcher, I think, and uh, I really had to really make a big sigh of disappointment when you saw how promising they looked in in winter testing to the acknowledgement uh, that Bonato made uh, in and around the Spanish Grand Prix, and they really had to de- make a determination if their car concept was completely wrong. So their design of Ferrari for this year is um, one that is prior, uh, prioritized in managing outwash and improving the aerodyma- uh, aerodynamic efficiency. And Mercedes' uh, ethos for this year is a higher d- a downforce uh, solution. So they're going to have some updates on the car in Monaco, but they're trying to, uh, what they're saying, evaluate new concepts uh, for, for the future. And of course, they're going to be able, uh, and they'll be doing that uh, throughout the, the, the season until they all, the teams reach that cutoff point where they decide to to, to focus and um, all their resources and their development uh, for the, uh, the 2021 car. Uh, but he said that the work that was conducted in the post-Spanish uh, Grand Prix test, um, Ferrari went through a range of setup uh, changes, and uh, it really uh, made clear that the thinner gauge uh, Pirelli tires being used uh, in, in 2019 are a real major factor. So um, it, it's different to what uh, they had in 2018, of course. So it, it really requires a, a different mechanical and aerodynamic uh, settings to really get the tires to, to work properly. So they're going to try and bring some uh, new concepts, or sorry, they are bringing some new concepts uh, and uh, and updates uh, to Monaco. But whether or not that's going to make a difference, of course, that's going to be the the, the big question. Um, uh, I think, of course, Monaco being what it is, is kind of a leveler between the performance of a lot of cars. And like we were talking a little, a little bit uh, about earlier in the show, that if you manage to get in front of somebody in Monaco, Regardless if they have a faster car than you or not, if, as long as they're in front, it's extremely difficult to, to get around them. So we might have to wait to, to Canada, to France, to Great Britain, to some of these races that are coming up in the next month or so to really see if these uh, updates uh, that uh, Ferrari are making to the SF90 are really going to make a, a difference or not. Because they they obviously need to close that gap to Mercedes because they've been there, but not quite close enough. I mean, I, I would even say that they've been a, a match for uh, for Mercedes. Obviously, I think uh, that, that uh, Bahrain was uh, the, the difference. And that was, of course, I think one race that they're really going to be uh, lamenting that they didn't get more from. Obviously, Vettel had a bit of a, a moment when he was trying to overtake Lewis Hamilton. And then uh, Charles Leclerc had the engine issue which really ruined his afternoon and the chance for a maiden Formula One victory. But hey, that's racing. These things happening uh, happen. If you look at the bigger pictures and the, the different races that we had uh, before and after that in Australia and China and uh, Azerbaijan and so forth, that they just clearly were not a match uh, for Mercedes and were just not even anywhere close to, to being able to match them in, in qualifying or during the race. And even though we're only five races into the season you look at the gap already that's uh, forming at the top of the uh, the, the drivers uh, championship for example you have Hamilton with 112 points Bottas in second with 105 then there's already a big drop off to Max Verstappen who's currently third in the world championship with 66 points and so only that's two ahead of uh, Vettel who's in fourth and then uh, Charles Leclerc who's uh, rounds out the top five with uh, 57 and if you look at the constructors it's uh it it's it's all Mercedes obviously I mean they've been taking home their fair share of the points more than their fair share if you <laughs> according to some people that I've been talking to I mean already in the constructors 217 points for Ferrari sorry Mercedes 121 Ferrari 87 for Red Bull and at some point and I mean, I know that there's a lot of races to go, but at some point it's going to become insurmountable and it's going to get 
and if it keeps going the way that it is, that point may, may come sooner rather than later. I mean, if you go back to 1992 when Nigel Mansell won his world championship, uh, Williams that year, and God, I mean, it seems like a long time ago that Williams were even competitive, let alone capable of winning world championships, but I dig, uh, digress. But in 1992, Mansell had the world championship sewn up by the time I think they got to Hungary in the summer. So it was basically... I mean, it was it was a non-event for the rest of the year. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but certainly when uh, a driver wraps up a, a world championship in the summer, the last however many races, I can't remember how, how many they had uh, back in 1992, but it was probably about like 15 or 16 races, if I remember. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the races really don't have any significance. It's, it really is best of the rest and everybody just uh, fighting in, uh, in effects, what are uh, table scraps. But now, at least, I mean, Vettel obviously has a, a long way to go if he's uh, going to get himself back into the, the, the conversation, the driver's championship. And uh, the way that things stand right now, it really is a fight between the two uh, Mercedes drivers. And it is going to be difficult. I mean, it is not completely impossible. I mean, if you go back a couple of years to 2016, for example, uh, through the first uh, four or five races of the year, Nico Rosberg really had uh, everything and all the luck go his way. And what did he have that year? I think at one point, I think he had about a 43-point lead over Lewis Hamilton. And by the time it got down to that stretch run of the last four or five races and Hamilton was really making a charge and uh, you know Rosberg was really managing the situation and not really pushing any harder than he needed to and just getting the points that uh, that that he needed we saw how Hamilton really was able to eat into that lead uh, throughout different times of the year and what looked like it was going to maybe be a bit of a runaway season for for Rosberg came down to the end uh, to a, a thrilling finale at Abu Dhabi and uh, when uh, Hamilton was at the front and uh, <laughs> you'll remember that uh, memorable uh, radio transmission when uh, uh, Patty Lowe got on the radio and was telling Lewis to speed up because he was slowing down and lapping significantly slower and trying to back uh, Nico Rosberg into Vettel and uh, and Max Verstappen who were following behind and uh, that really was something. The point is is not completely unassailable, but when you look at Vettel right now with 64 points and Hamilton with 112, I mean, that's a pretty damn big gap as it stands at the moment. So it seems that a realistic challenge on the world championship for Sebastian Vettel seems unlikely at this point in time. But hey, who knows if Ferrari are able to figure out what's wrong with the setup with the, the their car, what's wrong with their aerodynamics, why are they not getting the car to work well with the uh, with the Pirelli tires? Then who knows? I mean, they they do have one of the best, if not the best engines in Formula 1. So if they can get this car running good like we saw in Bahrain, maybe they will be able to win races. Will it be enough, uh, or maybe not even by winning races, but getting uh, scoring better each and every race? And over the course of the, of the, the, the next, whatever it is, 15, 16 races, whatever we have left, will that be enough for Sebastian Vettel to, to work his way back into the conversation for the World Championship or, or Charles Leclerc? I mean, obviously he's going to be fired up this weekend in Monaco to win his home race. That's a $64,000 question. I mean, honestly, what we've seen so far this year, I mean, um, I'm skeptical. I'm sure many of you out there are skeptical as well that uh, Ferrari are going to be able to turn it around and and, and uh, really challenge uh, Mercedes. And I think I was saying on the show last week that uh, perhaps the real big challenge for Mercedes is going to come from uh, Red Bull and uh, and Max Verstappen. And, and Max, and we'll talk about this in a, a little bit later on, uh, says that he feels as though that uh, Red Bull has been overperforming uh, to a certain extent uh, through the first five races of the season but still that's a bit of a different story anyhow it will be interesting to see where ferrari going back to them uh, what they do and what sort of updates they get uh, for their car moving forward because like i say i mean the, the, the window although it is still open to challenge for the world championship and for the constructors this year is uh, is still open they're gonna have to figure out something very very quick and get those uh, updates onto the car and uh, and get things moving or else that that window is going to slam shut and it's going to sh- slam shut quicker than they might 
think. Now, to, sort of sticking uh, with uh, Ferrari, we're going to talk about a Ferrari customer team and uh, arguably their B team, and that's uh, Haas F1. And uh, this was a, a quote uh, that I found uh, kind of uh, interesting. And uh, Roman Grosjean was saying that uh, the team Haas may come to rue what he called avoidable Magnussen uh, clashes. And uh, he was uh, referring to the incident uh, that he had with uh, his teammate Kevin Magnussen at turn one at the Spanish Grand Prix a couple of weeks ago uh, when they, he tried to overtake his teammate. Obviously, Grosjean was looking a, a lot faster, tried to make a, a, a move on his teammate going through that uh, series of corners, one, two, and then into three, uh, ended up uh, banging uh, wheels. He dropped back and uh, he finished uh, fifth and uh, lost uh, a couple of points out of that. And so... <laughs> It, it, it seemed like it was going to be boiling over a little bit. And uh, Gunther Steiner, the team boss at uh, Haas, uh, had really jumped in quickly to try and uh, throw some water on that fire and, and put it behind them. But uh, Grosjean is already talking about it, saying that... Uh, and I guess it's not so much uh, sour grapes or trying to reignite things. I mean, I, I think the point that he's making is, uh, is is valid. And he's saying that the points that he lost as a result of that incident uh, with, with, uh, with Magnussen could prove uh, costly for Haas because they, they lost three points in the Constructors' uh, Championship and <laughs> a nice uh, qu- you know, uh, classy quote from Grosjean here. He says, and if you lose a championship position for three points at the end of the year, you're going to eat your balls. Okay, maybe I might have said it a little bit different, but uh, he does go on to say that it was an avoidable situation. They could have done things better and that's fine, but... You know, everybody knows at this point what kind of a guy that uh, that Magnuson is. He's a, he can be very aggressive. Some people might say he's a bit stupid or or too aggressive or reckless. But I mean, the thing is that uh, that that Grosjean is. Uh, I think as much as he's saying that he has the right to pass his teammate, I think his teammate has the right to, to, to fight and hold on to his uh, position. And if you look back at that uh, incident uh, between the two of them, I don't think that uh, that Magnuson did anything different than hold his line going through the t- first uh, couple of corners at Barcelona, whereas Grosjean was beside him. They weren't uh, side by side. It wasn't like he was on, he tried to pass him on the outside into turn one, which would have given him the inside of the corner going into turn two. And that's fine, but uh, he was not able to pull alongside or even uh, edge out uh, ahead of his teammate uh, going into that corner. And I think that, uh, you know, you have to give the... uh I don't know if you want to call it benefit or the advantage to the car in front of you, but certainly I think that uh, Magnussen, uh, although he's got to be, uh, I, I think, uh, aware of where his teammate is so you don't uh, commit the cardinal sin of taking uh, yourself and your teammate uh, out of the race, I, I think that he doesn't, I don't think he's obliged to move over for, for Grosjean and uh, Grosjean too, as much as he feels though that uh, that he should be able to pass his teammate. Maybe that wasn't the best place uh, to do it. I know that uh, at the end of the that very long straightaway in uh, at, at Barcelona, that uh, with the, the aid of DRS, that it is a good uh, place uh, for a lot of people to make moves. And certainly we've seen uh, plenty of them. But we also saw in that race what can go wrong in that incident uh, between Lando Norris and Lance Stroll. Very similar sort of thing. And then, of course, at the beginning of that race, we saw how Vettel, who had the benefit of a, a quicker start from the third on the grid uh, behind Valtteri Bottas, who didn't start quite as quick, uh, tried to make a move on the outside and to, to turn one, knowing that if he got in front of uh, Bottas, that maybe he'd be able to stay there for a while, knowing that uh, that the Mercedes was uh, obviously the superior and much faster car than his Ferrari. You know, that being said, uh, interesting uh, interesting thoughts uh, to hear what uh, Grosjean is, uh, is, is saying. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it was uh, maybe a bit aggressive uh, from uh, Magnus in that move as as, as much as uh, you want to take it from from that point of view uh, as much um, as he's got to be careful again I don't think uh, he's obliged to pull over for for Grosjean and Grosjean is uh, not by any uh, means entitled to the to that position and both of them I think are responsible for not uh, colliding and, and taking themselves uh, out of the race but he does uh, like I say have a legit uh, claim that uh, or, or position that you don't want to throw away points uh, if you can avoid it anyways uh, time for one final break here on the Overtime Podcast Network don't go away we've got a, a couple more items of news including Fernando Alonso failing to qualify for this year's Indy 500 so don't go away we'll be right back in just one moment 
All right, uh, welcome back. And just uh, a little bit more Haas news. And uh, they have confirmed that they have no plans to alter their livery despite the rich energy case loss. And that was about a week or so ago. And they were involved in a a court case against white bikes who have a a very similar logo as uh, rich energy. And that is that sort of stylized stag's head that they have on their their drinks. And that's also what uh, Haas has on their cars and on their driver's helmets. Uh, they have been uh, asked or not been asked to remove or change the uh, the Rich Energy logo, so they don't have any uh, plans to do so. And it's uh, interesting the the, the case that um, that uh, Rich Energy lost has opened the door for White to, to lodge an injunction against uh, Rich Energy for to, to cease the use of the logo, and as well as uh, potential damages or a share of the profits. So this is something that uh, hasn't been done. And um, Gunther Steiner, team principal at Haas, said we were told that. When when we need to change something, they will tell us. Uh, for sure, we check that everything is okay and we are doing everything that they tell us. We don't have a problem with the logo. Rich Energy has a problem with the logo, so I don't know if they need to change it or if there is another solution. And then also just uh, sticking with the uh, Haas and also uh, Alfa Romeo, uh, they will uh, both be, uh, or they've uh, both decided to switch to uh, the new spec uh, Ferrari engine for the Monaco uh, Grand Prix. And uh, both uh, both teams have been uh, you know, I think they could have done a little bit uh, better. Um, Alfa Romeo has been a little bit uh, disappointing for me in the last couple of races. So hopefully uh, we can see a, a little bit more positive uh, uh, results uh, for Kimi Raikkonen and Antonio jo- Giovinazzi. And Haas has kind of been where Haas has been for the past uh, couple of years. Uh, looks like they're, they they might have some uh, promising uh, finishes and results, and uh, they're just a little bit up and down. Although they did, like I say, have a bit of a more promising uh, result in uh, Spain a couple of uh, weeks ago. So another team that's been a little bit uh, disappointing to, to start the, uh, the year has been uh, Racing Point. And uh, driver Sergio Perez says he's a bit worried that uh, the team has no answers why they were not able to optimize the major update they introduced to, to their car in Spain a couple of uh, weeks ago. And that is a little bit of a, a head-scratcher. Obviously, a year ago when they were still Force India, they were a team that was um, in turmoil, had an uncertain future, what with the problems that uh, team owner Vijay Malia was having with his legal problems and the fact that uh, the already um, meager resources, financial resources that is, compared to some of the other teams, the the taps were being turned off a little bit and those flow of funds were being uh, restricted. So to me, it was, I guess, expected to agree that uh, Perez and Esteban Ocon were not going to be as competitive last year just with those problems. Of course, later in the year, you have Lawrence Stroll and the consortium of uh, buyers that he has comes in after the team goes into administration and rescues them. The team is renamed uh, Racing Point and all that. And as soon as they got more funding back in the team, their second half of 2018 was night and day compared to the first half. And they finished the season very strong uh, compared to where, where they started in March at the Australian Grand Prix. So coming into this year, having the benefit of having a stable ownership group, having the benefit of having an entire offseason to, to work on the car and develop it and, and come back for this year, I was expecting to see a little bit more. And we've seen a couple of flashes here and there, but certainly a, a little bit uh, disappointing uh, to see that, and no pun intended there, of course, that... Uh, <laughs> disappointing pointing too much racing point anyways uh, it is disappointing that uh, that they haven't been able to to do uh, more because this is a team that is historically punched above their 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 weight and is uh, typically done a lot more with a lot less and and i think that there's there's obviously room for teams like racing point in formula 1 i have a, a lot of respect obviously for teams like mercedes that can come in and 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 redefine formula 1 in the way that they have but having said that i also have respect for teams like Racing Point that have less to work with and necessarily can't throw a lot of money into development and have to find more um, 
ingenuity and find more uh, or find ways to do more with less and, and be smarter about the way that they design and build their cars. And I got a lot of respect for that too. And certainly they have been a, a team that has uh, performed admirably over the years. So hopefully they can get it uh, sorted around or sorted out. Anyways, uh, talking about uh, McLaren now and Fernando Alonso's bid to secure Motorsports and Triple Crown being Le Mans, being Monaco and being the Indy 500 which goes in just a couple of days, is going to be put on hold for another year at least because he failed to qualify for the 500 this weekend and he struggled throughout the opening week of practice at Indianapolis and slipped into the last row shootouts last weekend and that happened after he was unable to secure a top 30 spot and then over the four lap averages, Alonso was knocked out of that showdown by American Kyle Kaiser by just a very, very small margin and get this by 0.019 miles per hour. So uh, uh, Jill DeFerrin, who is the sporting director at uh, McLaren, was very, very apologetic. And he was uh, he worked with uh, Alonso a couple of years ago uh, during the McLaren-Andretti Motorsport Partnership in 2017. And uh, well, that's before he actually took on his uh, current role with uh, McLaren. So um, he was uh, very apologetic uh, about that. And they built their own team for this year's attempt. And that was headed up by a uh, former, Force India Deputy uh, Principal Bob Firmly, who's now been confirmed to have left the, the team on Monday. And it was really seen that um, their uh, presence at the Indy this year is kind of a, a precursor, a prelude to a full IndyCar season in 2020. Uh, but instead of uh, focusing on the 500, uh, DeFerrin uh, spent uh, Sunday uh, and Sunday evening just apologizing to, to everyone. And uh, Alonso uh, certainly uh, will have to try again, uh, not this year. And uh, Lando Norris in uh, McLaren in the Formula One team was saying that uh, the team is right to, to take it on the the, the the chin, as he says, rather than uh, buying their way onto the grid, which is some weird rule that uh, that they have. I was not previously aware of this, but apparently a team that uh, d- does not qualify is able to to buy a grid spot from, from somebody. I don't know exactly how that works, but... <sighs> Obviously, McLaren has lots and lots of money. I mean, uh, they, they've been very successful as a Formula One team and also in their commercial ventures. They have very rich owners, but why do it? You know, I mean, it would just be buying a spot for, uh, you know, a guy in, in, in Fernando Alonso and taking away from somebody that legitimately qualified it. So I agree with Lando on that. And I'm sure that uh, that deep down, uh, Fernando probably feels the, the, the same way. And uh, why just, uh, why go that route when you can come back next year and try it? And, and I, I don't want to take anything from uh, Fernando uh, or take away anything from Fernando Alonso. I'd very much like to see if he can make a legit challenge and win Indianapolis and, and thereby win the Triple Crown. Obviously, he is an extremely very good uh, racing driver, and it will be cool to see if uh, Fernando can win it. Uh, I mean, obviously, Graham Hill is the only driver uh, to have uh, won it. He won Indy in 66, Le Mans in 72, won in Monaco five times, uh, the final time in 69. He was a two-time world champion in 62 and 68. Fernando, of course, was a back-to-back uh, world champion in, uh, in Formula 1 and 2005 and 2006, but you look at the names of the drivers that uh, won two of the three legs of the uh, the, the Triple Crown. That includes Stasio Nuvolari, uh, Mike Hawthorne, Phil Hill, A.J. Foyt, Bruce McLaren, Jim Clark, Jochen Rintz, Mario Andretti, Emerson Fittipaldi, Jacques Villeneuve, and uh, Juan Pablo Montoya. And a lot of these guys are uh, are Formula One world champions. Villeneuve won in 97. Emo won it a couple times in the 70s. Andretti won it in 78. Jim Clark, two-time world champion in 63 and 65. Phil Hill won it in 61. Mike Hawthorne won the world championship in, in 1958. And it's just uh, extremely impressive <laughs> what some of these guys uh, have done. I mean, you look at A.J. Foyt, won the 500 four times in 61, 64, 67, 1977. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. So, I mean, regardless if uh, Fernando is uh, eventually able to win the 500 and equal a uh, great 
Graham Hill's uh, achievement. He's already is an extremely elite company, uh, although I'm sure he's not uh, satisfied or content uh, to leave it at that uh, at the moment. But just uh, sticking with uh, McLaren just uh, very briefly here before we just uh, go over the Monaco Grand Prix, before we close out the show. And um, Zach Brown, the CEO of McLaren, insists that he will not be taking a step back from his duties or his involvement uh, with McLaren, despite the arrival of uh, Andreas Seidel from Porsche in uh, WEC as the new McLaren team principal in Formula One. And he, he said quite adamantly that he will not take a step back. And he said that the, the plan always was to bring in somebody that was going to be exclusively focused on the, the leadership of the, the Formula One team. And he said that his job is uh, much uh, broader in its scope and that is uh, to run the business and grow it. And so nothing is uh, really uh, changing for him. And, you know, honestly, I think if we look at where the team was a couple of years ago, where when uh, Zach Brown came into the picture and where they are now, Obviously, they are still not winning races, but for the first time this year, I think we've obviously seen through the first five races of the year that that, that things are moving forward in a positive way. I mean, they are much further ahead of where they were, not just this time last year, but obviously over the previous couple of years. And uh, that has uh, a lot to do in the fact that the, the 2019 year, a car is responding uh, in a way that uh, that the 2018 uh, a car wasn't in the way that uh, was reacting to the updates and uh, certain. Certainly, I mean, we've seen uh, through the, the handful of races that we've had this year that they have been uh, quite uh, competitive at uh, times. I mean, it's still obviously a bit uh, of uh, a way to go before they can challenge for podiums and obviously for, for wins. But for me, it's it's a good positive sign. I mean, where you look where they were not just a year, but two years ago. And if you look and see where another former uh, race winner in Williams is at the moment, and they're just completely still going backwards at the moment, at least uh, from from an outside perspective. The fact that uh, McLaren is making forward progress is a, is a very, very good thing. And then, of course, uh, let's talk now briefly about uh, the, the Monaco Grand Prix. So it goes uh, this weekend, and it has been held 76 times starting in 1929. And it is an iconic Formula One race. I mean, you have that, what was that race, uh, film they made in the 60s, Grand Prix, whatever it was. <laughs> but that's uh, kind of getting a little bit uh, off topic. But the most winningest driver at Monaco was Ayrton Senna, who won there six times. Five-time winners include Graham Hill and Michael Schumacher. Uh, Alan Prost won there four times. And then three-time winners include Sterling Moss, Jackie Stewart, and Nico Rosberg. Two-time winners include... Fangio, Nicky Lauda, David Coulthard, Fernando Alonso, Lewis Hamilton, Mark Weber, and Sebastian Vettel. So the the most winningest constructor was the aforementioned McLaren that has won there 15 times in uh, since 1984. Their most recent win at Monaco came in 2008. And then that's even uh, even more than Ferrari, who've only managed to win there. 10 times in uh, in comparison. Uh, Mercedes has been pretty dominant over there over the past several years, winning four times uh, since uh, 2013, although they haven't won since uh, 2016. And uh, even uh, Lotus, the iconic mark, has won seven races there. So the, the last three winners uh, going back uh, to last year was uh, Daniel Ricciardo in 2018, Sebastian Vettel in 2017, and Lewis Hamilton got his second career win at Monaco in 20. 16. Anyways, just a, a few quick stats about the circuit. It is 3.337 kilometers long. It is 78 lap race, which gives a race distance of just a hair over 260.28 kilometers. The lap record was set by Max Verstappen last year, and that is a 114.260. And the tire stress is uh, quite low, it, as, uh, as well as lateral uh, force. It's uh, fairly low in grip. There's a it's a high downforce circuit, and it is not a very abrasive uh, surface there. So the tires that uh, Pirelli is taking to the race this weekend include the hard C3 compounds, the medium C4s, and the soft C5. So uh, they've also announced uh, that uh, they will be taking the the C1, C2s, and C3s to uh, Great Britain in a couple of weeks. I don't know why I threw it in there. It just happens to be in my notes, but uh, be that as it may, it should be interesting uh, to watch. It's uh, always a very, very uh, eventful race, or it can be. Last year's maybe it wasn't. I know it uh, drew a lot of criticism from uh, a lot of the 
drivers. I know that uh, Fernando was quite, uh, quite critical about it last year and how uneventful it was. I mean, it was interesting and in, uh, to, to watch Danny Ricardo and whether or not he could um, hold out despite having a failing engine, but uh, down there through the race order, of course, it was a little bit uh, stagnant and it was a, a little bit uh, <laughs> boring. So, you know, let, let's hope that this year is uh, is more exciting. It, uh, it can be a very eventful race. I seem to remember watching a race there in the 1980s where they had uh, half points. I can't remember exactly what year that was. I'm thinking of off the top of my head that it may have been a um, 1984, 1985, something like that. Anyways, uh, it, it is a race where anything can and often uh, does happen. And uh, it really is uh, one of the most iconic uh, races on the circuit uh, because it really is like their their homecoming uh, for Formula One. And, you know, it's got all the glitz, all the glamour, and perhaps maybe that uh, makes up for where the uh, where the maybe lacks in a spectacle on the track. But, I mean, there have been some iconic moments. And like I was saying uh, earlier in the race, I mean, Max Verstappen, I mean, he started at the, the, the back of the grid and he managed to finish ninth last year. I mean, okay, well, what's, what's a P9? But uh, considering that uh, a lot of, uh, you know, cars... Uh, you know, <laughs> did did not uh, do a lot more. I mean, we had three cars uh, uh, retire last year, including Charles Leclerc, Brendan Hartley, and Fernando Alonso. Uh, I mean, a lot of cars, they didn't really make up uh, too many uh, uh, spots on, on the grid. So for Max to go from uh, 20th up to 9th, I think is, uh, you know, really, really impressive. And uh, certainly, as I was saying earlier, it was a, a real benchmark moment uh, for him in his season and a real turnaround for the year that he had. Anyway, like I say, we have seen some really uh, unexpected things. And I'm thinking of specifically when uh, Olivier Panis won back, and I believe it was 1996 for Ligier. That was one of those uh, unexpected uh, moments. And of course, uh, Monaco certainly can deliver those. And maybe we'll get one of those this year. I mean, certainly uh, Danny Ricardo will be fancying his chances to win this one. Certainly he doesn't have a car at uh, at Renault this year that is uh, competitive as the, the Red Bulls that he had over the past uh, several years. But he's come very, very close on uh, several occasions uh, before he finally won it la- last year. Of course, a lot of us will remember that botched uh, pit stop that he had a couple of years ago when he pulled into the pits and the Red Bull team did not have any tires ready for him. And that uh, really ruined his uh, chances to win that afternoon. I believe that was uh, 2016. But uh, certainly if he can make up some ground and he can qualify well, and maybe if uh, something happens, if there's some drama, let's put it that way, maybe Ricardo might fancy his chances to uh, get a good result and maybe a second and back-to-back win because that that team needs a bit of uh, good news. They need something to go right for them and certainly winning in Monaco, although extremely unlikely, would be a big boost to the the, the woes that, uh, that, uh, that Renault has had through the opening several races of the year. Anyways, guys, I think I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much to listening to the show this week. Uh, you can get in touch on uh, Twitter if you have any comments or questions, and you can do that at Scuderia F1 Pod. You can also email us at Scuderia F1 Pod at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please do us a big favor and leave a five star rating and review on the podcast platform of your choice. It really does help us and it helps us grow the show. So we'd be very grateful if you uh, would uh, take. Take some time out and do that. It's not required, of course, but we would appreciate the love. Anyways, that's a wrap. Thank you very much uh, for listening. And I look forward to talking to you guys again very, very soon. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Scuderia F1 podcast. If you want to get the show notes for this episode, then head over to ScuderiaF1Pod.com. Want to get in touch with us? Then email us at ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com.